welcome to Two Double X Cambridge Community Radio and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show for your science on a Sunday. I'm Tom Street, and I'm joined by Annie McDonald as my co-presenter this morning. Hello, Annie. Hi, thanks for having us. And our star today is Sally Buck. Who's <laughs> Thank a, you. That's very generous. Is <laughs> <laughs> a researcher from the ANU working on. Um, Maybe you can explain what you work on, Sally, because I'm going to muck it up. <laughs> well, right now I'm working on plant respiration, but I've done a lot of work on a very particular plant protein called rubisco in the past. Rubisco? Yep. So what, what does rubisco do? So rubisco is, in fancy words, the primary carbon-fixing enzyme in photosynthesis. But really what it does is it takes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and it fixes it into an organic compound, so like a compound that the plant can use to make things like sugars and proteins and all the stuff it needs to grow. Right, yeah, so it takes yeah. carbon dioxide out of the air. Yeah. And, and is it involved in ripping the carbon from the oxygen? Um, not really. No? No. Okay, but it takes, when that carbon is separated from the oxygen, it then puts it into organic molecules like yes. sugar so it yeah. atta maybe attaches it to hydrogen right yeah and well it attaches it to a like skeleton molecule that gets recycled through this pathway of like the carbon fixing reactions of photosynthesis so it's like an almost complete organic molecule and all it needs is like a little bit more carbon so that it can go off and do some work in the plant and make sugars and stuff like that uh-huh but but so a car, like an organic molecule is basically carbon, like carbon attached to carbon in a chain mm -hmm. with hydrogens yeah. off, the, off the side. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's creating all of that or? So what it, it takes a five carbon molecule okay. and attaches a extra carbon. So it becomes a six carbon molecule and that then gets split in two so that one of those can go and do like other stuff in the plant make sugars make protein make it grow so we can eat it and the other one gets smushed back together and made ready so that's another five carbon molecule so that it can attach get another co2 become another six carbon molecule and keep going around so six carbon molecules are the the standard sort of production thing in plants that well so there's way more chemistry than I usually do in my day-to-day. Okay. -day. <laughs> but um, it takes six carbon molecules, of, like glucose and stuff. Uh -huh. But um, in this particular pathway, it just so happens that that's the size that it needs. That's the size that it needs. Okay. Yeah. I, there, it's a, about a 12 like enzyme pathway it's really long it's really complicated but between all of them they make it work so my interest is just in the very first step okay well but you have to get to the five carbon molecule right to start so there's other enzymes that are doing that yeah okay. that's someone else's job i don't okay. know i don't okay. know them <laughs> right Okay, so there's all these different enzymes that are doing these different steps in this reaction yep. with the photosynthesis. They're like creating a two-carbon molecule mm -hmm. and then a three and whatever. 
Okay. Yeah. And then Rubisco is important for making that slightly longer chain. Yeah. It's okay. the one that brings in new carbon so that it can keep going. But just for that sixth carbon, right? No, the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I thought when you were explaining before that Rubisco was doing all of that carbon fixing. So, it is doing all of the CO2 fixing. So, it is taking, it is the only one that is taking gaseous carbon dioxide. Uh So, like, the carbon dioxide that we're familiar with in the atmosphere, you know, the one that contributes to greenhouse gases and all of Uh that. It is the only enzyme that is taking that carbon dioxide and bringing it into the system as a biological molecule as an organic compound that is like in solid phase that plants and organic living things can use. Right. Okay. So it's a very, very important molecule. Yes. Very, very important. Right. So, and you, you were saying before, it's just this one enzyme that does this step in all plants and photosynthesizing microorganisms. Yeah. So things like red algae Uh and marine algae, anything that photosynthesizes. Users. So if this enzyme disappeared from the planet, we'd be in big trouble. Massive trouble. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we wouldn't have anything to eat. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't have anything to breathe because the rest of photosynthesis would right. stop and they would stop no, evolving oxygen. Stop producing oxygen. Okay, yeah. so we've got to make sure that doesn't disappear. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it would be pretty tricky for okay. that to happen. But All right, okay, so we don't have to worry about that. No. No, okay, that's good. Don't let that keep you up at night. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right. So you're, you were looking at this molecule trying to make it better. Yeah. Right. So that was what I was working on for my PhD. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And, and so this is a molecule that's the same in all plants all over the planet. And through evolution, basically nothing's popped up that's any better. Yeah. So and, it's pretty similar in all plants. Uh-huh. But... There are some kind of slightly interesting different ones in organisms like red algae or cyanobacteria. Um, And there are a lot of really interesting systems around it to try and support it and make it better as well. Yeah. Right, right. What does better mean? Like more efficient or more of it? More efficient. It's got more of it down pat. Like plants can make a lot of this particular protein, like, half of the protein in a leaf can be rubisco. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it still doesn't mean it works very quickly or does a very good job. So rubisco catalyzes around three to ten reactions per second, which in the world of enzymes is super, super slow because you can conceive of three things happening per second, right? Uh You needed enzymes in your brain to be able to conceive that and they worked considerably faster. Right. Like anything to be able to move your hand, you've done yeah. like reactions. Yeah. And you can move something within a second kind of thing. Yeah. So for an order for like us big slow lumbering elephants of yeah. creatures to work at the speed we do, there has to be all of these things happening inside our yeah. molecules our cells and molecular level that's going way 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 faster way right? way way faster uh-huh. and rubisco is not one of them because it is right. going it is going slow yeah so to try and compensate for that they 
or like plants will try and give it as much of its substrate as possible. So at it'll any, create a lot of them. Is that what you're saying? It'll or? create a lot of them, yeah. but also there are lots of like plants that have mechanisms to concentrate carbon dioxide around rubisco. So like it doesn't get a choice. It's oh. going to be so they're, so, they're, so they're bringing the carbon dioxide, all of its feedstock yep. in there. And it's just like yep. packing it around that yeah. enzyme. Yeah, so it's ready to go. Yeah. Okay, to speed it up as fast as it can. Yeah, and to try and stop it making any mistakes. Yeah. So do you think that this is a molecule that people are going to improve? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems amazing to me considering that there is all of these billions of microorganisms. Or we talked about about this earlier you're saying it's slightly different the the rubisco in a microorganism yeah compared to a higher plant so you can't just take the right rubisco that works in say a, a algae mm-hmm. cell and then put that into a higher plant because of it's just yeah. not right in some way it just well it just won't fold the rubisco will literally fall apart yeah. because it's made up of lots of little pieces um and so in the plant there are a bunch of other proteins that help support it and get it into its final form and then once it's made that final complex it's nice and stable so so you need to you'd need all of that genetic um programming for those helper proteins Mm -hmm. from the to move those from the your algae or whatever into your higher plant as well in order to make it work and then you have to hope that none of the higher plant um, proteins are going to interfere and get in the way right. and mess so, things up. So maybe up. someone will do this work at one, one day and, and, and shift all of that genetic material in a way that works and then we'll have a, what, a super plant that's better than yeah. any plant that's ever ever been. I mean, there are people trying to do it. Yeah. Um, the One of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded projects, the RIPE, which is realising increased photosynthetic efficiency... Uh-huh. One of their projects is trying to do that. Right. Yeah. And then what I worry about, I'm sure lots of people worry about, is uh, that you then get like this plant would then take over. It would just be like a super weed that would take over every, everything because it's like more photosynthetically efficient than anything else. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's a concern, right? Well, I think one of the key things about weeds is actually their growth form and how Mm. they um, function ecologically. So they're usually really, really good at germinating. They um, can grow in really small amounts of soil in little gaps. And like they thrive on disturbance and things like that. And so that's often what drives a weed to be weedy rather than it being better at um, doing those photosynthetic reactions. I mean, if weeds were good at photosynthetic reactions, we could just take them and put them into our crop plants, but we haven't been able to do that. Right. So I think there is concerns, like it's valid to be concerned that something that is much better could outcompete other plants, but realistically it's not going to, unless we made a super plant of all of the things that it needs to be weedy, the ability to grow in every different environment mm. and things like that, it's probably not going to escape and take over the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Right, yeah. So like you, you're probably tying it to a, a, a plant that in a lot of ways is not very suitable for being a weed. Like yeah, something you, oh, like wheat or rice. Oh, right, and, and, yeah. and one that you want to produce lots of big fat seeds that are good yeah. for people to eat, but aren't yeah. particularly mobile, perhaps don't actually really grow that well without yeah. a lot of help, like fertilizers and irrigation. And before anything made it to market, yeah. we wouldn't just be improving photosynthesis. Right. We'd be improving photosynthesis and making sure that all of that extra carbon and sugar and food went to the seed yep. so that it's actually useful for us. Yeah. And then it will also be, you know, rigorously tested and all of the kind of um, legislative fr framework that is in place to make sure that we do things safely right. and with consideration for the environment that will all be ticked off before it made it into yeah. the ground. Yeah. What I, what I guess, I mean, mm. what would, would you have things to stop it hybridizing? So you get this like weedy wheat that can hybridize with it and then suddenly those genetics just shifted into a population of wheat that perhaps is a bit more of, um, weedy, you know, that can spread yeah. and, yeah. Well, um, one of my favourite things about... Uh, Rubisco, yeah. as we were talking about before, yeah. is that it's in the chloroplast, yep. not the nucleus. So the chloroplast is like an extra compartment, kind of like a mitochondria, in a cell. Yep. And it has its own DNA. And so Rubisco is coded in that DNA. But the thing about um, plants is that pollen doesn't contain chloroplasts. Right? So that worry about it going into the field next door, the pollen that would go into the field next door wouldn't contain an improved rubisco because it doesn't contain a chloroplast. So it's a really effective biocontrol for um, introduced genes because only the maternal tissue, so the part of the plant that's going to produce the seed, will contain the uh improved or altered so it's, only the, it's the plant that you've planted and the seeds that it yeah. produces that will have and that genetics it will and yeah. if it's something like wheat it will only fall within like a short distance of the plant right like it would be the biggest concern then would be like a bird getting the seed and flying it over to somewhere else but yeah. still then it's not going to hybridize it's just going to produce another plant mm. yeah so that, that's definitely reduce the, the spreading of it yeah 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 um yeah so you, you were telling us before about how you can alter the the rubisco the genes for rubisco mm -hmm. in, a, in a leaf mm -hmm. and you literally what do you put in a petri dish and then you just shoot tungsten like genetic material coated tungsten yeah at the leaf yeah it's really cool to, it's called uh -huh. biolistic transformation. Okay. So sci-fi, <laughs> isn't it? Well, it's out, to me, it sounds quite um, basic in, in a way. Like it's sort of, uh, you know, you, you, you shoot the material at it, you hope that it sort of gets into the right place in mm -hmm. some one in, what, a thousand or a million cells, and then you select out the ones that have done what you wanted it to do rather than being like really precision and targeted well so with this kind of transformation you can add sequences to your like um like a bit on the end of each part of the 
thing that you want to transform. So of your genetic information, if it was like a sentence or a story, you have a little bit of an introduction and a little bit of a conclusion. And that introduction and conclusion lines up with a pre-existing introduction and conclusion in the exist in the plant. And so so it's a genetic sequence in the in the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And and your bit of genetic code matches the end and the start match yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can flip it out. So it, you would say, you were saying it naturally does that. Yeah. Like it will in I'm, I'm guessing it doesn't happen every time, but some cases it will just introduce itself in yeah. and swap that out. Yeah, and so you're changing the story in the middle. Uh-huh. Um, and it's gone in exactly the same place because right, you've got those. Right. So that is really targeted. It's super targeted. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and so, how do you how do you create that bit of um, genetic material that is? I'm, I'm guessing it's exactly what you want it to be. It's like you printed it out. Mm-hmm. You like we want, like the the genetic code's made up of what four different things, right? Yeah. So it's like. It's like having an alphabet of four, yes, four things that you can have, right? And that programs all the different molecules that yep. we get. So, what? Oh, sorry, I should I say proteins? That programs all the proteins that that living things. Well, I mean, it also it it goes from DNA to uh-huh. RNA to proteins. Yeah. And mostly proteins do work, but every now and then you get types of RNA that do work. Right. Um, but it's all coded for by DNA. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about, playing around with here when you're transforming. That's the stable thing that is inherited in, like, through generations. Yeah. So the plans for building those proteins and those yep. RNA. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And... Um, but you wanted to know how we make those? Yeah. How do you create that bit of genetic code that is exactly what you want. Like you've printed it out, like this is the bit of code that we're going to implant into this cell. How do you do that? It's quite interesting. It depends on how much money you have and how many changes you want to make. Okay. So if you want something that's not very different from something that already exists or maybe you want something that is from one plant and you want to put it into another plant, you can amplify it out of the existing plant through a process called PCR. So in that process, you get short sequences that are called primers. Uh-huh. And then you use um, enzymes that usually do this kind of work in bacteria. So we've kind of co-opted the biological process and we've taken the enzymes that do the DNA copying and we've purified them out and we make them work for us. Right. So you give them the bit of DNA that you want copied and the little sequences that show them where to start and where to finish and those enzymes will do the work for us and they'll make hundreds of thousands of copies and then we can use those. Right, okay. So that's it. it's not exactly like you've got like a genetic code printer and you just like type it into your computer and like pump this out well there's you can also buy genes from companies and Uh on those ones you sit down at your computer and you type it in and you tell them what you want and then they do all of the behind the scenes work and send it to you 
in a tube okay. all <laughs> so dried down. you can tell down. them any sequence you want and yeah. they will send it to you. You can okay. sit at a computer and type in but the actual, your four-letter the actual, alphabet. The actual <laughs> process isn't like an inkjet printer. It's No. And I'm, I should know how they do it, but I don't know okay. exactly how they okay. do it. Right. But it is kind of like they put one thing on and then they put the next thing on and they build it up. Right. Yeah. So you've taken that information and you've given it to bacteria or enzymes that produce it. How long does that take for the enzymes to make that material? So one, there are kind of two ways that you can amplify DNA that we commonly use. And one of them will only do a really short sequence and you can do it in a tube with just the enzymes. And that one, it usually takes like three hours Okay. So, because the enzymes, when they're living by themselves outside of a cell, they can't actually do work for very long. So eventually they die and they get not very good at doing anything. So there's about three hours of them being useful. But we also use E. coli a lot. So we have this lab-based E. coli that's not pathogenic, so it can't make you sick. And it's really easy to get DNA into E. coli and to take DNA out of E. coli. So we will use that and make just grow the E. coli up kind of thing, which means you put it in a flask, you give it some stuff that smells like chicken soup and <sighs> leave it overnight. And when you get back in the morning, you can spin down those cells and break them open and they're full of the DNA that you want. And you just purify that out and you have your DNA ready to go. Wonderful manufacturing it yeah yeah and that's what you shoot into the plant that you're mm -hmm. of interest yeah something like wheat or um any so the one downfall of this like biolistic transformation is that you can't do it on all plants yet so we're slowly improving the number of different kinds of plants that we can transform this way but at the moment it's pretty limited so, yeah, we can do canola. That's a new one. Mm. Okay. But historically, one of the things that we can do really, really easily, and it should be noted that we only use this for research purposes, like not to support an industry or anything, but we can transform tobacco because it has these really big leaves that are really easy to do work on. So we grow up these tobacco plants and we can shoot their leaves and make them, we can test things out on them to make sure that what we're looking for actually works. Using tobacco as lab rats. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, just because it's a bigger leaf. It must yeah. be more than that. It, we, it. There is something more than that, but we don't know what it is. Okay. Like something about that leaf. It just works. It's happy to be shot with tungsten and change its genetic sequence. In the chloroplasts. It, yeah, it yeah. is very agreeable to it. Yeah, okay. But uh, we haven't worked out why yet. And what about with canola? Do, do people know why canola works? Or it's just people tried it and they oh, this seems to be working out pretty well. Yeah, slowly but surely people worked out some of the things that were stopping it from working. So they were able to like knock out a gene and by knocking that out, it meant that it um, 
regulated the processes of DNA maintenance less well. Okay. So it was more amenable to just changing. So it stopped checking that everything was okay. Oh, okay. And so it just let the change happen. Right, so they took out a gene that stops um, mm. genetic change from happening. Yeah. Okay. And then they used those modified, genetically modified plants for further research and yeah. development, right? Okay. Huh. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so if, so big looking big picture, it's taking in the carbon. Yeah. Is that, so are we talking about helping with fixating carbon, uh, heat waves, climate? Is that, does that come into the picture here with Rubisca? Um, so plants account for most of the carbon fluxes. So of the carbon coming in and the carbon going out. And all of that carbon at some point is passing through this enzyme, Rubisco. So it is really important in that equation. But um, we're not, or I'm personally not necessarily looking at making it work better so that we can draw down carbon or something. Sure. I'm looking for, clim- for, for reducing clim- yeah. carbon dioxide in the yeah. atmosphere. Yeah, right. I'm more looking to understand how it works so that we can understand, like, with, as temperature changes, how is it going to be able to continue to draw down carbon? Yeah. And, like, will it continue at the same rate? Will it get faster? Will it get slower? Does it depend on where the plant came from? Like, will we find that tropical plants do better and alpine plants do worse? So, or so this is your current research. So in your PhD, right, you were looking mm-hmm. at trying to change rubisco in, in plants, yeah. the, the genetic sequence for it yeah. and, the, and the protein in it. Yeah. But but now you, you're just trying to understand it in your current work. Yes. Right. Understand it and the way that it works and how it's affected by temperature. And I guess... Yeah, and a large part of the impetus for that research is that people are worried about what's going to happen to crop production mm-hmm. under, uh, within a world where the climate is changing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so uh, like, I guess, pre- like, agronomists and, and, and farmers would, like, currently understand a, a, a lot of about where a crop will grow and under what sort of conditions, you know, oh, if it's too hot a season, then you're going to get these sort of problems, for instance. Yeah. But they don't understand at the molecular level how that's working, right? And that's so that's like just taking it a step further into really understanding the mechanics of how plants are doing this so that perhaps we can, I, I guess, cha- change something molecularly? Or where, 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 yeah. would it, where would this lead? What would be the outcome? So realistically, the outcome depends on what we do find out because there are quite a few different paths that we could go down. Yeah. Um, but like on a direct to farmer kind of approach, maybe we find that we need this one helper protein for Abisco to be really temperature stable, but, um, we can't, or in the crops, existing crops, like a good example of this is rice. It's really unstable. And so rice doesn't grow very well at high temperatures. Right. But maybe we find a wild relative of rice, like 
an Australian rice variety that just grows out there that is not too genetically dissimilar as, from there, is cult- it native Australian rice? Okay. Yep. Um, and so they're not too genetically dissimilar. And there might be a path to breed those together, like through multiple steps to try and get the valuable trait from the wild variety in conjunction with all of the hundreds of years of breeding in the cultivated variety so that we can still get the same rice that we like with more temperature stability. And so there's lots of different projects in that kind of space happening at the moment. I know people doing heaps of work in cotton. Yeah seen many many different cotton flowers wow. because cotton exists on almost every continent it's incredible the diversity of different cotton species but the thing is most of them don't make cotton wool they don't make the hairy stuff that you need to be able to make clothes out of so what people are trying to do is find the valuable traits in those cotton plants and put them into the ones that we can use to make clothes out of Right. Yeah. So trying to that's how trying to understand the molecular processes can help because it will tell us where to look for the valuable traits that we want. So so this is a trait they found in wild cotton plants, did you say? Um so people are looking in wild oh, okay. cotton plants. But What what are they looking for? Thermal stability. Thermal st- in So that we're looking for um, this is this is in the helper proteins for the rubisco. Is yeah, that, yeah, right. So, so I think rice is probably the best example, yes. right? Because that's the main food crop for humanity. Like it's the biggest one, I think. Right? Yeah, it's it's certainly it's, up there. it's certainly like a very very <laughs> big one. I, I'm guessing it's the biggest because it's what what everyone in Asia eats, and that's where yeah. most of humanity is, right? So. Um, and and people were really worried that in in decades to come like say the later part of this century that we're going to have experience enough warming that we can't grow rice or mm-hmm. a major crop plants in the places where they're grown now yeah and then suddenly like bangladesh and india or china or whatever that where there's hundreds of millions of people live aren't, aren't producing the huge amounts of food that they're producing now and then suddenly yeah like it's a disaster mm. you know like it there just won't be enough food for yeah. for half, you know, for for lots of people. And yeah, so it's a way to like how are we gonna deal with this? Yeah. Right. So if we can find, like you're saying, like that wild plant from Australia, maybe that wild rice and that gene in there and breed that into mm-hmm. our crop rice, then maybe it will be able to sustain like, I don't know, like two degrees or five degrees hotter temperatures. Yeah. Or those spikes maybe you get even higher it's whatever sort of climate we might be experiencing yeah. the future is just different from now and we'll continue to be able to grow essential crop plants in the areas where they are now and avoid total meltdown of civilization exactly and yeah. so at the moment we're thinking about that with one protein like we've worked out one part of the puzzle that could help with that but we need to understand what is driving how photosynthesis changes with temperature on a number of different aspects so that we can try and find more solutions to the problem, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Eggs in baskets. Eggs in baskets. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At the moment, we've got one egg 
and it's in one basket. <laughs> or like that approach is one egg, one basket. The, but like the, the wouldn't it be rice. nice if we had some more eggs? Right, oh, for, yeah. for, de- for developing our crop plants to be more heat tolerant. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I guess you yeah. could look at... You could look at a whole lot of different proteins and processes, but mm-hmm. rubisco looks like the low-hanging fruit, I guess, because yes. it's such a terrible protein, as you were saying. Like, it's just yes. really inefficient, really slow, and you're like, surely, and quite affected by heat? Well, well the idea is maybe it's not affected by heat, right. but the proteins that it needs to work are. So okay. its support network falls over and... It right. becomes useless before it does. So right. if we can help its support network get better, yep. it can keep. But ov- obviously, active. there's some plants that like growing in hot conditions, mm-hmm. and you know some that like cold. And I guess if you're looking at the ones that like hot conditions, they must yep. have mechanisms that allow to do that. And maybe they're not. They don't have to go along with the rest of the plant. And so that's yeah. I guess yeah. that's why looking at Australian wild rice because hot, dry country. So they've obviously got ways of dealing with yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know if the Australian wild rice is edible at the moment? I hadn't heard of it. I don't. I don't know actually. Okay. Yeah. I, no. I, I get the impression that most sort of grassy grain things, yeah. the seeds yeah. are edible. Yeah. Yeah. So I just if don't know like how much it produces. Yeah, rye. that's the thing. Mm. Is like, okay. yeah, like like wild grains like most grasses i think you, you know pick grass seeds and eat them but they're just small amounts or hard to gather in together mm. yeah whereas like domesticated rice like produces a stem covered in these big fat grains mm. that easy to cut off and then thresh yeah. so they come off and it's really yeah. about well like you were saying with the cotton like if you're trying to breed it for that particular to make it make clothes mm. the whether you could do that for other things like eating or whatever, whatever yeah. kind of I like trying to um diversify the kinds of crops that we grow is a massive part of research and people are trying to do that so things like trying to get people to eat more lupins mm. because <laughs> yeah. they um they grow really well and they're a really good source of protein and they also are really good for soil health okay. um and mm. so as an intercropping species they're great um so there's stuff like that and trying yeah. to breed native Australian grasses into something that will be more commercially viable is also something that people are doing. Yeah. So but yeah, there's not only one egg and it's not in one basket, yeah. but yeah. those baskets are quite Different far removed from, from and, yeah. and respiration where I work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, um, I, do you have some examples so what you're, of other research that's achieved similar sort of things to what you're try, like looking to achieve? So I, I guess someone that's another group that's identified this gene in this related plant, so like wild Australian rice, you know, might have a gene for, for making mm. rubisco work better in hot, dry conditions. And then you want to like breed that across into domestic rice. Are, are there other like similar things that have happened with other genes or traits? Well, um, what is termed the green revolution? So in the 60s, someone worked out that making shorter plants 
was beneficial because they put less energy into growing a stem and more energy into their seeds. Right, so we used to have like wheat that was much taller yeah. or corn that was way taller. And it turns out everything was yeah. taller. Oh, really? Yeah. So all the crops you were growing were all tall and I guess they're competing for light they're against competing the other plants. for light they blow over easily uh-huh. they're putting heaps of energy into their stems and growing yeah. taller they're making more leaves that they don't need and yeah. that all costs energy and in a crop and plant sugar. you don't need it because yeah. you're not in a, a for you're not in a competitive situation yeah. where the other plants are going to grow over you if you don't grow tall right you're like yeah. no we're clearing this field and we're going to plant all of you the same so it doesn't matter if you're only 10 centimeters tall or whatever because nothing's going to be higher yeah yeah and so by making them shorter they put more energy into their seed and that's the bit that we eat and that we want Mm. and um it produced massive increases in yield so the guy who did this his last name's borlog he won a Nobel Peace Prize because he, at that time, had single-handedly saved the most lives by producing, pl- or like working out how to make plants that were shorter and sharing that with everyone. They were able to make crops that were shorter, that made more food, that fed all of these people so people didn't have to go hungry. So when we are trying to find something to improve crop yield now... That's kind of what we're going for. People like will term it the second green revolution. But we want to find something that we can like put into all crops that will like really punch it up a notch so that we can try and hit some of our yield targets. Right. So like you develop this technique for getting improving the crop and then you can just apply it to Yeah. That's why not just rice, but wheat and Yeah, and that's another reason why Rubisco being that low hanging fruit is targeted because it's in all plant species. So if we can work out how to improve it in one, chances are it'll help improve it in others as well. So we'll be able to implement that in a range of species and hopefully improve yield that way. So are you able to explain to us, Sally, how how Borlog did that? How did he make plants shorter? Was that, is that a good question? <laughs> so most, in most plants, it's a dwarfing gene. Okay. Um, and what you can do is look for those in the DNA. So he worked out what that gene was. Right. And you can then look in your, and, and not only what it was, but where it was. So then you can take... It's on this chromosome at this sort mm-hmm, of point exactly. in most plants. And so those oh. are called quantitative trait loci. Okay. So it's the locus, the location of a trait. And so because we knew where it was, we could look for it in different plants and find the plants that had it and then bring... Like the variety of that plant. The variety, yeah. the cultivar, the... Yeah. And then, so, breed, and then breed it yeah. up so that it's like everything's expressing. They've got yeah. two copies of that gene. Yeah. yeah. And then you breed yeah. that into because whatever the... in nature, it's not going to be handy to be short usually. Yeah. So it's not but something... But it still exists. It still exists, but it's recessive. Right. Because sometimes it might be handy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so plants are kind of complex because they'll have often many, many, many copies yeah. of right. their genes. They're not just like diploid, so having two copies. Yeah. They can be hexaploid. They can have six. Or, oh, right. Yeah, because they're, yeah. they're not like 
Wheat animals, is tetraploid. Animals just It'll have, have three. What, just have, we've got two copies yeah. of each gene, right? But in plants, they can have, what, four or six or eight yeah. copies of a gene. And and so I guess that that gives them great diversity in what they're, yeah. in what they're creating in their cells. Yeah, and so if you think about your DNA as like the template for anything you're going to need in the future, mm. it's like all of your um, your resources. We have worked out how to exist pretty well as humans and the, the resources that we have are great for that genetically. But plants are stuck in one spot and the world happens to them. So they... Whoa. They can't just walk walk away and go inside if it's They have to cope cold. with what... They what, have to like... It's like you're a little seed and you get like put in a little crack in the pavement yeah. and then you've got to deal with that. Either yeah. you survive or you don't, right? You're not moving so somewhere nicer, right? They tend to have a lot more genetic information because they might need to pull a lot of more like so rabbits so, out of hats to try and right. deal so with like, situations. Like at a molecular physiological level, they can alter more than us, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Which is that's interesting. It's quite interesting, yeah. Yeah. But and, and so that makes it more difficult because if you if you want to have them, you just want we just want you to be a short plant. Yeah. We don't care what you want to do. We want you to be short. So they're only in this particular gene area that controls yeah. height. We just want every you've got eight copies, and we want every single gene to be the short gene. Yeah. So that makes it more difficult to yeah. breed it up until that's the only thing in your cultivar that the only gene that exists. Yeah. yeah. And so with things like wheat, which we have been domestically growing for such a long time, there are so many different versions of it. And breeders, like people who breed wheat, have all of these different versions. So all they had to do was look and they could find it. But there are like hundreds of thousands of slightly different wheat varieties. Um, uh-huh. And so there's this massive resource. Right. Like so it was easy for them to find a short-ass wheat that was yeah. basically... Yeah, and so it all got like implemented that. pretty quickly. So what, what did they So they go, okay, here we've got a short wheat. They're all yeah. short-asses, but that's not the wheat that we want because it doesn't have enough grains on it or something. Yeah. So over here we've got another wheat that's got a lot of grains mm-hmm. and then we breed them together so that we get the genetics for the big grains or yep. whatever it is and we get the genetics for the being a short ass mm-hmm. and we put them together so they've got 100% genes for being big grains and 100% genes for being a short ass and then we've got yeah. the perfect wheat variety. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Whereas it's more difficult if you're going to say like a wild Australian rice variety mm-hmm. and you want to find the ones that are more heat tolerant because of the way they deal for a bisco and they're going to have eight different genes, some of... Yeah. And there's only one that you want. And so yeah. just, that adds and another not, step. They're not quite similar enough, so it's going to be really hard to breed them right. together. So you can't, it's not like you can have one have sex with the other. I mean, plants don't have sex. Whatever. But, yeah. Fertilize the other yeah. rice plant. They can't, they're not interfertile. Yeah, right. or they might be, but the seed might not be super viable and they might need a lot of help. Right. Plants are kind of weird in that they can hybridize uh-huh. a lot. So often people talk about the biological species concept, which is that a species is defined as a group of organisms that can produce uh, viable offspring, that can sexually reproduce to produce viable offspring. Yeah. And so then two things that aren't 
the same species can't. So, so like a horse and a donkey, a they're separate species because they, they can breed together and they produce a mule, mule. but the mule is, is infertile. infertile. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Right? So they're, two, they're, they're not the same species. Yeah. Whereas, so, where, I mean, what's... Whereas you, know, you can have, like, if you look at, go to a um, nursery in a yeah. garden shop and you get all of these cultivars of plants it's often like a grevillea or a eucalyptus like a specific species mm. that has been bred with another species to get a trait or like a pretty flower that we want or something like yeah. that i thought of an example so yeah. like brussels sprouts and kale and uh um What's the green vegetable like cauliflower? What's that? And cabbage cauliflower as well. They're, oh, they're, all, they're all the same. So yeah. that you can get a cauliflower and you can get a broccoli and you get, get kale, all these different crops that we have. Mm-hmm. The and they will readily, the brassicas, yeah. they yeah. will read, readily produce seeds. One can fertilize the other and it'll produce a plant yeah. that will grow. Um, and so they're not a different species. They're, like they're slightly different yeah. genetically because we've kept them separate, but they're actually just one species of plant mm. yeah. the same family right they're some a lot of them are in fact the same species oh and okay. they are du- just different like cultivars of but it's that. like it's like it's, you look different from your brother or sister or like other people you know like people have there's differences between what you know you get tall people you get short people mm. you get people with brown hair or blue eyes or whatever there's all these different things that are different about us but we're all one species of humans right and so it's just like that yeah it's yeah, keeping them by keeping them separate, we've yeah. amplified certain traits yeah. in those plants. Before we run out of time, should we go to talking about what you're working on at the moment? At the moment, yeah, Plant that sounds good. Respiration. Yeah, so respiration being kind of the other side. Respiration is like breathing. Yeah, so like gas what we exchange do. coin. Yeah. Gas exchange, right? So. I mean, we all think of plants as taking in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, but they do also still release it when they um, do metabolic reactions. Oh, okay. So, So like, in the same way that you use sugar, uh like, you eat food, you process that, and part of that processing releases carbon dioxide. We're taking all that energy carefully captured by plants when they take carbon Mm -hmm. dioxide out and use it as a building block for building sugars and carbohydrates and all of that. Right, and then we steal it off and when we eat them. Yeah. And then we burn it off and then we breathe it back out into the atmosphere once we use it for energy, right? Yeah, but realistically, they were storing that for themselves. They always intended to use that sugar. So we're basically. Yeah, we stole it. We we killed them and we stole it and we used it. Okay. Yeah, but they were going to use it anyway. So they were still going to take that sugar and use it for energy and release yep. okay. some of so that Okay, so they're storing outside. it for a reason because they've yeah. got things to do themselves. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But what, what do they use energy for? Like they're not running around and Running around, stuff but like they're us. growing. Like, they're growing, like okay. building big and tall. And that takes energy. Yeah, Okay. yes, it does. So, um, but also living takes energy. So yep. to do... So like, moves, like things running around inside the cell at a molecular yeah. level, yeah, yeah. they're burning energy. Yep. Yeah. And like making sure everything keeps running smooth, continues to run smoothly, that takes energy. Like you've got these little bits and pieces that have to run around. Yeah, doing they, things. it's a well-oiled machine, and okay. greasing it costs energy. Right, so, and so and so what it, the plant may, is it's creating these these sugars, and then it's breaking them down again when to yeah. to drive those processes. And I yes. and I suppose 
at night it would wouldn't be building any it, yeah any new carbon molecules like sugars it's, it's just breaking them down and releasing carbon dioxide yeah yeah and so that's kind of what i'm interested in at the moment and so how um working out how respiration will change and how much sugars plants consume will change with temperature. And because that feeds into a couple of different things, like how much sugar a plant uses to grow dictates how much sugar a plant can put into yield. So it has like agricultural implications. Um, But it also dictates how much carbon dioxide is put back into the atmosphere and when you think about all of the plants on earth put together, mm. that's a really big part of things like our climate system models. So the models that we use to predict climate change and how climate change is going to change as the temperatures warm and as maybe water becomes less available or as more land gets cleared. How What is the feedback going to yeah. be? From what the- is... And how... Uh, from the plants and their respiration and how they're affecting the ongoing carbon cycle into the future. Yeah, like are plants going to keep doing the same thing regardless of temperature? Are they going to release more carbon dioxide as it gets warmer? Are they going to release less? Like will they slow down and do less stuff? Like we don't really know. It seems like that's a really complicated question, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you're looking at the molecular side of it, but then there's all different species and... Yeah. different climate zones that are all going to be changing in different ways and and but I guess it's like you have to start somewhere with putting the piece yeah. of the puzzle together to try and get some idea of how things yeah play and out. it's such an interesting question because like will something in the desert do the same as something in the Arctic like or on top of a mountain or in a tropical region like, will they do the same thing or will they adjust slightly differently? We don't, we genuinely don't know. Don't know. So. I don't, I don't know if I understand what you're saying correctly, but I mean, the way I envisage climate change is, is that the, the different species, like species that used to live in a particular area mm-hmm. are just not going to be suited to that area anymore. And then other species that we bring in or, uh, you know, that can move in by themselves are going to take over. And so you're just going to get a change of what grows in particular you have new species yeah so on a long time frame that will happen but if you think of the northern hemisphere and the like massive boreal forests so like big pine forests and things like that they're tens of like tens to hundreds of years old right so those trees are really old and they're still going to be there when the climate changes because the climate is changing. So what those individual trees that are already in existence do is going to be important for the next 100 years. And so that's more what we're trying to understand. Uh So, like, will those pine trees up and die just straight out? Will some of them die and some of them live? Will some of them grow faster because it will be warmer and they were always ready for, like the temperature to be just a bit warmer or will they just just cling on kind of thing yeah and so i guess yeah all different species are going to have different yeah reactions right and so we want to learn more about it to see if we can predict what a reaction will be so how do you do that do you simulate 
uh, like a heating or something and then measure the respiration of a plant? Or how, mm-hmm. do, you, how do you make these? So we need to start somewhere. You yeah. can't just... Like you could, you can make a model completely made up, but it is much better if you take some like experimental data and put that into a model. So at the moment, the experimental data, it represents not very many species. So Um, what are you looking at plants, an individual plant in a, in a controlled environment and looking at how it's respiring? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we do a bit of that. Yeah. We also do a bit of going out into the field, yep. like out into the bush and actually looking at plants that are out there and sampling from them to measure their respiration. How do you measure a plant in the in the field? So we have these really specky machines uh-huh. and they um, have like a, a chamber that goes onto a leaf and it seals, it's a gas tight seal. And that chamber has a regulated temperature and it gives the leaf light and then it can measure the gases that go in and the gases that come out yeah Yeah. so we can provide the plant with light and measure its photosynthesis we can turn the light off and we can measure its respiration like you said plants at night time they only respire they don't do photosynthesis anymore so by turning the lights off, we can measure their respiration and so we can get an idea of how much they're respiring versus how much they're photosynthesizing. And, and you can change the, the conditions that that leaf mm-hmm. is in. So you make it hotter or colder. Exactly. Can you change the humidity? Yes, the gas you can. And the gas they're very, there? very nice little machines. Right. <laughs> so you can say, we're going to have more carbon dioxide in here, we're going to have less, we're going to mm-hmm. put in more oxygen, yep. whatever sort of gas um, makeup you want to have to see what impact that has. Okay. Yeah. Wow, okay. And so we just, you know, run around outside clamping leaves of all different plants to try and understand what is uh, changing with their respiration and their photosynthesis. That's super fascinating. Well, I've just realised that we're running over time here, so we better go. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on the show. No worries. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Street. Annie McDonald is my co-host, and that's been Sally Buck from the ANU. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.